Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing great. Just so that everyone knows, today, this month, is LGBT History Month. LGBT History Month. Yes, and we're making LGBT history with this podcast. Indeed. I didn't even think about it like that. Yeah. You know, I'm the first, I think I'm the first person to, first out LGBT person to join the church after the 2015 policy change. Yay, history-making Derek. And I'm still here. I lasted longer than the policy. Some people didn't think I was going to last in the church, (laughs) but I I lasted longer than the policy did. You did? Wow, I didn't even think about that. You lasted longer than the policy. (laughs) Yeah. Three and a half years, by the way. And tomorrow, I guess Sunday, for y'all who are going to be listening to this on Monday, is National Coming Out Day? Right, right. How do people normally celebrate that other than coming out? I don't know. I think it's uh, some people choose to come out on that day, but many people, I think it's just a celebration of everyone who has come out, right? To say that, look, this is important. In fact, this is one of the most important tools that we have as queer people. We don't have a lot of power, Mm -hmm. but one of the biggest powers we have is to come out. Imagine what if one of the 12 came out as gay, right? How, How that would change the conversation more than anything else although the the latest like really sophisticated queer activists they've changed the model and now it's not no longer coming out it's inviting in so it's instead of like taking something precious to me and dumping it on you it's more like okay i'm centering myself i'm inviting you into a part of my story and you can accept that invitation or not but this is who i am and i'm inviting you into this part of my life by telling you that I'm queer. It's a very beautiful way of framing it. Like it's a great way of taking, first of all, taking that power and acknowledging that this is a gift that I'm giving to you by letting you see this part of me Mm -hmm. and also reframing it in a way that doesn't make what you are doing a burden or something that you are launching against other people. It is something, a part of your humanity that you are letting people see, which is really the gift. And it also decenters the closet because so much of the narrative is born out of the closet experience, and that's a product of homophobia. Very good. What do you say we talk about General Conference from this past weekend? Yes, let's talk about General Conference. Now, first of all, the overall theme of this conference, I don't know if you've been hearing this, but I've been hearing leading in the days leading up to conference that many of the talks were going to talk about unity, about inclusion, about the marginalized mm-hmm. in some form or fashion. And I didn't really believe it. But then the Saturday morning session of conference happened and I was like, oh, they were serious about this. This yeah. was one of those rumors that actually came true. You know, <laughs> That was such a big focus for me that I forgot that President Nelson was probably going to announce more temples. A, a theme of the whole conference seemed to be including other people, uh, recognizing the marginalized, recognizing the outcasts, ministering to people who don't feel they belong in some way. Just, it was a very inclusive theme. It was, it's, it's easily one of my favorite general conferences we've had in the last little while, certainly in the last five years. It might, that actually might be my favorite one in the four years that I've been a member of the church. Mm. It seemed like they were really intentional about trying to be as woke as the structure will let them get away with. That's a good way of putting it. (laughs) Right? I mean, they've got some significant limitations on them based on what they can say, their global audience, their 
their base and their mass, they, they're accountable to them in some way, so they can't get too out of line. But within their limits, at least some of them were trying to be as woke as they can be. Right. I remember a couple years back, it may have even been as recent as last year, so like three or four general conferences ago, where I remember counting how many times they mentioned racism in each session of general conference. And I remember they went like three sessions of conference in a row where they actually mentioned racism once per session. And I was like, yo, this is a big deal. This is huge. They mentioned racism at least once every session of conference. And then Saturday afternoon happens, or I don't remember what session of conference it was, but in one of them, racism was brought up three times. Furthermore, it wasn't brought up three times because each person was quoting what a previous apostle had said that same session of conference because the first time racism was mentioned twice it was literally one apostle quoting a previous apostle in that same session of conference so in three different instances in three different contexts racism was mentioned as something we got to deal with and that is significant is it enough No, obviously not, but I do want to take that victory. We are making progress in terms of how much more comfortable the church is getting talking about this particular issue. Even though it's kind of in your face now in today's America, you can't really, I don't feel like you could have had a general conference and not talk about this. So I just wanted to name that. One thing I noticed is going back with my theme that I've mentioned many times that I think the message of Jesus really is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable We saw a lot of that happening this conference. I think there's so many people in need, suffering, marginalized, really just not only the pandemic, but political, racial, all these other things. There's a lot of people really in a tough spot. And I think a lot of, many of the speakers wanted to embrace and reassure and comfort those who are suffering. And then some of the speakers, including Whiting, Holland, who said Christianity isn't supposed to be comfortable. He wasn't the only person to say it either during conference. Yeah, there was at least... Renland. One, yeah. And some of the other... There's facets of some of the other talks that also were trying to afflict the comfortable. And I, I'll also add, I loved Renland's talk. It might have been my favorite talk during all of conference because he pretty much came for everybody's necks, which mm-hmm. I was, I'm always a fan of. And it's not the first time he did it either. Yeah, and he mentioned race too. He did. He did. With that, uh, let's go ahead and talk about some of these talks, some of these uh, more notable ones. I think Oaks is on one one end of the spectrum for me because he came in my head so close to doing so many things right. It was probably the most stressed I was during the entirety of General Conference was listening to Oaks talk. Hearing him say things I agreed with, and then him say something that I really didn't agree with, I'd just be like, yes, Oaks! And then five seconds later, no, you were right there. You almost had it. Just, I don't know. I've listened to that talk probably more than any other talk during this session of conference because I really want to honor Oaks's effort. I knew after that talk that he was trying you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But there was mm-hmm. just so many things throughout that talk I just did not rock with. For example, out the gate, this was like the second or third paragraph he said in his uh, whole talk. He said, we live in a time of anger and hatred in political relationships and policies. Listen to what he says next. First thing, we felt it 
this summer when some went beyond peaceful protests and engaged in destructive behavior. That's the first thing he said. Second thing he said, and only other thing he said, we feel it in some current campaigns for public offices. Then he goes on to say, unfortunately, some of this has even spilled over into political statements and unkind references in our church meetings. Now, first off, when you talk about anger and hatred and political relationships and policies and how that was made manifest these last several months, destructive behavior beyond peaceful protests is not among the first or most significant things I think of. I won't suppose to know why Oaks felt to choose those incidents to name among the many other manifestations of anger and hatred we've seen over the last several months. I'm, I'm not going to do that. I, I suspect that he didn't feel the gravity of the moment we're in until people got violent, despite the fact that pe peaceful protests happen every time an unarmed black person is killed, despite the fact that black people have been angry for centuries and that every time one of these peaceful protests happens, it is an expression of anger. That's what those are. And they far outnumber the acts of destruction. We, we have that as a statistical indisputable fact now. So I, I don't like that Oaks, when he talked about examples of anger and hatred and only decided to name two examples of this, I don't like that he picked a symptom of the as the manifestation of this anger and further, such a relatively insignificant symptom. In so doing, he undermined the movements for black life and I just really did not appreciate it. And I think there's a couple of things about his analysis that don't quite make sense to me. One is I, I fundamentally I I don't think he understands what the rioters, looters, w whatever he calls them, what they're doing. He probably just thinks, oh, they're like just acting out of anger and out of control, and and don't actually understand what's going on here. What like happens? as this talk goes on, it seems like he feels like they're acting on satanic impulses, and that I really took issue yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, I think. What has happened is that the, the social contract has broken down. I think there's a place for anger. Even Jesus got angry. There's multiple Even Jesus cases where his anger, and you know, God in, throughout the Bible gets angry most when innocent people are victimized. That's really, what, that's really what makes God angry. And in his name. Yeah. Like that really upsets him. There's also something that I don't think Oaks, Oaks gets. There might be a difference between something that's true and who gets to say it. <laughs> and so some of his positions around nonviolence, I would tend to agree with, but I don't think he's the one that gets to say that. I think that really is a conversation internal to the black community. Even still, if Oaks had a history of saying anything about the history of violence and oppression against black people, and he said that stuff more frequently and louder than what he's been, than what he said here, I might not take issue with it, but it's because he decided to name all that problematic stuff about the looting and the rioting or the violence and destructive behavior that occurs without spending any significant amount of time talking about what led to that, then perhaps I might not have an issue. But you're right, Derek. Like This is definitely a conversation that I feel is more appropriate for the black community to have. But if he's going to talk about it, at least be honest. Mm -hmm. Be like all the way honest about what this is in the context of. Like in the broad scheme of this social justice conflict that we are having, this social justice moment, this civil rights movement that we're in the middle of, I don't appreciate him acting like that is the most significant sign of anger and hatred. Yeah, and another thing that I don't think he quite analyzes correctly is that not all violence is the same. No. And now I'm on board with nonviolence. That's a larger conversation. 
But even so, I will still admit that there's a fundamental and essential difference between violence in the service of oppression and violence in the service of liberation. Mm-hmm. Because they come from different causes and they have different solutions. So to just lump all violence together doesn't make sense to me. Every time that the Savior ex- like uh, showed anger or every time that God showed anger, it was always some sort of righteous indignation. You know what I'm saying? I'll, I'll be the first to admit that uh, anger, like even righteous anger, can make people do some foolish and uncharitable things. Not too long ago, we were talking about Tiankum in uh, the book of Alma. We read what happened to him. So I will definitely uh, say that there's merit to what Oaks is saying about anger. We can definitely use it improperly. But like you've already said, there's Mm -hmm. a place for righteous anger, and we can use that properly in the way that previous civil rights heroes have used it. Uh, The point is that to label anger as Satan's tool or to say that being angry is to yield to the influence of Satan, it seems pretty gaslighty to me, especially when it comes to marginalized communities facing injustices. Their anger is the result of pain caused by their boundaries being crossed and telling them that their anger is satanic seems spiritually abusive to me. I don't think there's a day that goes by where I'm not angry about something happening in this country. Mm -hmm. Like I'm in a perpetual state of rage. As James Baldwin once said, to be black in America is to be in a perpetual state of rage. But I would not call my emotions of satan. I wouldn't say they are of satanic origin. I don't think I'm angry because Satan is making me that way. I don't think I'm angry. I think I'm angry because my love for my people and my love for justice kind of forces me to be angry. Like who wouldn't be angry if they see the consistent and horrible dehumanization of their people who deserve respect, who deserve their humanity. Like who wouldn't get angry at that? Even the savior got angry at that. I don't think Jesus was under satanic influence when he got mad. Just anger is a big part of why I do this work. It's a big reason why I'm here. It's a big part of why this podcast exists, why I'm applying to grad school. The anger wouldn't exist if I didn't mm-hmm. love my people. It wouldn't exist if I didn't respect my ancestors. It wouldn't exist if I didn't want to honor the Savior in my covenants. I feel like we have to name that and make space for righteous indignation in the same conversation where we condemn the destructive and damning power that anger also possesses, which is, I think, what President Oaks wanted to focus on. And, you know, here's one of the ironies is that every successful social change movement has been fueled by anger yep like even though even the even the labor movement that gave us our 40-hour week and our weekends and our you know prohibitions of child labor all that stuff that we all like that came from people being angry yes sir you know voting yes, for women the voting rights act of uh, the 60s like all these things that we take for granted we shouldn't because they weren't always there they were there because someone got mad yep yep I do want to lift up some of the things that Elder Oak said that uh, can serve some uh, anti-racist conversations that we want to have. Mm-hmm. Elder Oaks, or sorry, President Oaks did say that uh, there have been injustices, like these words here. He said, in public actions and in our personal attitudes, we have had racism and related grievances. Reverend Teresa A. Deer of the NAACP has reminded us that racism thrives on hatred, oppression, collusion, passivity, indifference, and silence. As citizens and as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we must do better to help root out racism. 
couple of things there. One that you highlighted before the show. President Oaks quoted a black woman. I never thought I would see the day. And in the name and using that black woman's words, he did say that we as citizens and members have to do better to root out racism, which is a victory I'm willing to take. Oaks said it, and he quoted a black woman to say it. I'm going to take that victory. Now, did he title her as the Reverend? The Reverend Teresa Deer? He did. So I want to point out that he quoted an ordained woman from another Christian denomination. Mm -hmm. She's an African Methodist Episcopal ordained woman clergy member. Like, wow. I I think that needs to be named. Go ahead, Oaks. Proud of you, man. Right, right. Do better, but proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so there's a place for ordained women in teaching our apostles. Wow, Mm. look at that. Look at God. Won't he do it? Right. These are inspired because I don't, I, if they weren't inspired by God, they wouldn't have come up with this. They would not. They would not. And then he would later go on to say that this country should be better in eliminating racism, not only against black Americans who are most visible in the recent protests, but also Latinos, Asians, and other groups. Oaks came out here and he said some impactful and necessary things. We'll, we'll get into this conversation a little bit later, but again, I just wanted to lift up that there was some things in Oaks' talk that we can use that can serve the ends of rooting out racism in the church mm-hmm. because we have mm-hmm. leaders, particularly, particularly leaders like Oaks, saying them. I just want to say one more thing about Oaks' talk. Say it. And it has to do with his positionality as a lawyer and then a justice. So he's coming from this, from the justice, the judicial world, where you, where balance is a prime value. You're balancing different rights. You're balancing different principles. It's all this delicate tightrope walking. And I think this really comes out and explains a lot of what's going on in his talk because his talk reads like it was written by a committee. Like someone like you and me got a few lines in there and someone like the all lives matter people got a few lines in there (laughs) so it looks like it was written by committee but i think the reason is that he was trying to do this delicate balancing act that is completely his framework as as a justice and i don't i don't really feel the need to balance like that right but yeah that's what the legal profession is about is just balancing evidence balancing sides balancing people different opposing rights or different opposing principles so that's kind of where he's coming from not to excuse it at all but just to say this is what what the lord's working with a great point thank you for bringing that out this kind of brings me to a president nelson's talk i believe the title was let the lord what was it the let lord the lord prevail. prevail yeah i wanted to just highlight that quote that everybody's been quoting from that talk because as soon as he said listen carefully to what i'm about to say there is a lot of gravitas in his voice and i was like oh president nelson is about to say some stuff mm-hmm. and then he said god does not love one race more than the other i grieve that our black brothers and sisters in the world over are enduring the pains of racism and prejudice today i call upon our members everywhere to lead out in abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice this is probably the loudest i got during conference like there's a reason i can't go to conference in person no more because i know i'm going to make noise anytime mm-hmm. this happens mm-hmm. but i gotta point out how how historic it is that a prophet of God over the pulpit at a general conference specifically named the plight of black people globally. That is not insignificant at all. And we can definitely use that and take a, take a victory in that naming our plight validates it. People will hopefully be more sensitive to it now and seek to learn about it. And in saying that I 
also don't want to encourage the black saints to be satisfied with crumbs. This is not enough, in my opinion, in order for people to understand the power and influence of white supremacy both in and out of the church. People are already weaponizing pieces of this quote, particularly that section, God does not love one race more than another, as a validation of sentiments like all lives matter. And that's just one of the reasons I would like the brethren to be more specific in their condemnation of racism. This is a victory we can and should take, but it still doesn't adequately address anti-black racism in unmistakable terms, which is what I'm looking for. I need people to understand why all lives matter is problematic. I need them to talk about white supremacy and police brutality and the other forms of racism, the other forms racism takes, as well as how our own problematic history has fed into it and hampered our worshiping and ministering efforts and our missionary efforts. Anti-racism is holy work and we should be specific about events about definitions and what exactly these attitudes and actions of prejudice are like he said that and i heard it but i'm just like okay what are those actions and attitudes of prejudice what do those look like and then he moved into he just did this jarring transition into some talk about dating and i'm like okay I guess we're not going to get any more today, but I'm going to take this. I'm going to take that victory. But this is one of the reasons we're here, Derek. We can talk about these attitudes and actions of prejudice. We can be more specific where the brethren are not able to be more specific. I have kind of three things I want to say. One is the statement that God does not love one race over the other. Well, I have two things to say about that. One is that it should be contextualized by his immediately following sentence that emphasizes and focuses on black lives, right? So it's not like God loves all races, no one more than the other, therefore we're gonna be colorblind and not even mention any one race, which that's what happens most of the time is people mention racism and then not actually mention any one race as being worthy of our attention. And I think this feeds into something I wanna bring out from the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. You know, you've got the older son and the younger son, and the younger son in the end gets all the attention. He's the one that gets the fatted calf, and then the older son comes in and says, oh, all sons matter. Like, why don't you give me what you gave the younger son? And then the father comes back and says, you've already, you're all set. Like, you've got everything. You've got everything, actually but this is my son. My other son needs my focus right now and needs the attention. It needs to be pulled back into moral inclusion. So you need to wait right there while I focus on what needs to be focused on. Mm. And I think, I just love how Jesus taught. I, I can hear people getting mad, right? People who think like the older son, when they heard that, they would want to crucify Jesus. <laughs> and some of them probably did, right? But... But yeah, I think there's something beautiful to be named about. Yes, it's it's not gonna be good enough, and I shouldn't um, excuse it in any way that it's not good enough. But it's important to point out that what he was trying to say is a step in the right direction. He, and I think that even what he said should not be misconstrued. I think the people, the All Lives Matter people are actually objectively misunderstanding what he says. Oh, absolutely. Right, and so we shouldn't let people take it that way. Absolutely. 
And the other thing I want to say is his immediate sentence following that, it might be his third sentence, he says that he calls upon members of the church to lead out in the holy work of anti-racism. Oh, yeah. What does that tell you? And what that tells me is that oh this is this is actually really radical this might have been the most radical thing he said all conference because there's this cultural idea that we have to be that the church leaders babysit us we can't do anything without their permission they spoon feed us everything and we are just passive computers or robots or something and and they're the ones with all the levers and controls Mm -hmm. and that completely flies in the face of why we were sent to mortality it flies in the face of the doctrine of agency it flies in the face of all of us becoming and developing godlike qualities like undermines all of that right or like our our theology is complete so he really blew a hole in the popular ecclesiology of our church yes ecclesiology is a fancy word that means (laughs) The doctrine about the nature and structure of the church. All the fancy words you use, you got to define that one. <laughs> Just like you never defined these words before, but go off. So look, he he blew a hole in our ecclesiology by giving us the title of church leader. Mm-hmm. Right? He literally says that we are supposed to lead out. And guess how radical that is. It, next time I do something anti-racist that everything everyone thinks is controversial, I'm going to say a prophet of the Lord authorized me to do that yes sir a prophet of the lord authorized me to do that yes sir i'm a leader now we're Mm -hmm. all church leaders we're supposed to lead like so yes there is a sense of there's the crumbs right yes taking the crumbs we can get but there's also the sense in what nelson said dramatically he didn't just give us crumbs he gave us the whole kitchen And we got to cook the food, right? And we got to, but we can make a feast and say that we were authorized by a prophet of God. True now, this story. doesn't excuse him from having to do the work that he needs to do, too. Right. right? There's a lot of work that the leaders of the church can and should do, and there's a lot of good they could do. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm delighting in the fact that now I can I can talk about racism anytime in in Sunday school or in a talk, and I can say, look, I've been authorized to lead on this. Yep. And I'm also going to follow, of course, the lead of especially black and indigenous people who I Definitely. think have been the most victimized by our church, but then all other people of color as well. And then all marginalized people, right? I mm-hmm. think there's there's ways that these talks can be used mm-hmm. and quoted by thoughtful. And that's how the scriptures always are. The scriptures are going to be good in the hands of good people and bad in the hands of bad people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wish that the leader of the church would give themselves permission to do the right thing. I just don't, I don't think they're like evil, of course. I wouldn't be a member of the church if I didn't think that they were led by God, but I just don't think they give themselves permission to go outside some of these boxes that they've been given. Hmm. One thing I did want to say to that point that you made uh, a couple minutes ago about the prophet authorizing us to lead out this harkens back to something that you said many times on the show, Derek, that we as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we should be leaders in this stuff. If we have the restored gospel of the same Jesus Christ who gave dedicated an entire section of his sermon to saying, blessed are these people who have been historically told they don't matter. If that is the church that we are a part of, it stands to reason that we should be the first people 
to talk about anti-racism, to talk about ministering to marginalized people, to say Black Lives Matter, because what is Black Lives Matter if not blessed are the black lives, blessed are these people who have been the least, the lost, the last in some way. It makes total sense for us to have these conversations about anti-racism in total sense for us to be the first to say black lives matter and condemn police brutality, white supremacy in all its forms and learn as much as we can about these attitudes and behaviors of prejudice that we might overcome them. This is the holiest, one of the holiest works we can never be a part mm -hmm. of is the work of anti-racism. And I hope that members of the church, as they progress in this effort, can begin to see that, which kind of brings me to Elder Whiting's talk. And then I will be done with my thoughts on conference. Mm -hmm. But he talked about looking inward and seeing where we might improve. He also talked about being unaware of the imperfections that we have, which makes me think of implicit bias that exists in a lot of us. Many people will claim not to have any attitudes of prejudice, but will be some of the worst offenders when it comes to racism. He suggested that if we are brave, we might consider asking trusted family members, friends, or other associates what attribute of Jesus we could stand to improve and then brace ourselves for the response. In the case of anti-racism, we could check in with actual people of color or other white people who have an anti-racist framework like you, Derek. Oh, thanks. You are welcome, sir. Um, and uh, read the words of black and other anti-racist academics or consume media from, the same, from, the, from these same people. The point is most of us have blind spots in our development as God's children and in our anti-racist journeys. And if we're not checking in with ourselves and actively educating ourselves regularly about how anti-black racism functions, then we're not really in a position to say whether we're racist or not. We, we might not even be in a position to ask God if we're racist or not because we haven't done the work of studying the matter out in our minds and God can't draw from an empty well. So one thing I got from Elder Whiting's talk is that perfecting ourselves is not really something we do by ourselves. I've said before on this show that the work of Christianity is very interdependent and perfection is a group effort, not so much an individual one. We need God. We need others, probably. So in order to aid in abandoning racist attitudes and behaviors, you got to put yourselves in spaces with people who are qualified to have those conversations with us. Read their books, listen to their podcasts, wink, watch their speeches, <laughs> follow their accounts, consume whatever other media they got, go into their communities and their other domains, because simply inviting us to spaces that white folks already control gives them way too much freedom to ignore the discomfort our presence might bring. For example, my sister got fired from UVU because racism and then ended up suing the school and getting her job back, thankfully. But the point is that they hired her as a professor and also gave her responsibilities pertaining to black student life at that school because UVU knew that they struggled in that department. And then ironically, they tried to fire her when people didn't take too kindly to her presence as a black woman there, which is a pretty common experience for black faculty at predominantly white institutions. I've been at BYU when the same kind of thing happened. People would regularly rate these professors low on ratemyprofessor.com, complain about them and all this other stuff, talk about how uncomfortable they were in their classes, all this other mess, and just pretty much drive these guys, drive these folks off of campus. And then the schools would be dismayed when these black people they've invited into their space to darken up their <laughs> establishment 
decided to leave because they didn't feel welcome there for whatever reason. Building relationships across race will require white folks to get out of their comfort zones and explore new and unfamiliar environments. White folks likely won't be able to truly follow the second great commandment to love their neighbors as themselves until they do. We've gotten to the point where everyone thinks race, everyone agrees that racism bad is bad, but we don't all agree on what, what racism is. Correct. Say that. And without defining racism in a way that racists will recognize themselves in that yep. definition, yep. you actually haven't condemned racism. I imagine Ooh. that the All Lives Matter people... <laughs> Let yep. me say that again. If you condemn <laughs> racism, but don't define racism in a way that racists will identify themselves as condemned, then you haven't condemned racism. You have not. I just want to point out real quick that in Ibram X. Kendi's new book, uh, well, not so new now, but How to Be an Anti-Racist, probably the most popular book on anti-racism right now, he covers this in the first chapter. He talks about the importance of defining terms and naming definitions so that when you talk about what racism is and what it looks like, people can understand you. Because this is where a lot of the conversations about racism fail, is people not agreeing on what these different words mean and what racism is and looks like. So I'm just really glad that you brought that up because this is critical to our conversations about racism. It is, because a lot of white people will claim that there's racism against white people. Ooh. Like, that's why I like the term white supremacy, is because that's not symmetric, right? There's no way, well, I'm sure there's always going to be a way. Mm -hmm. But it's less likely than just racism to be. White people going to be like, oh, I'm poor. (laughs) White supremacy is not a thing because I'm poor. Where's Uh, my white supremacy? (laughs) I'm poor. But but yeah, I, I think that in fact, the All Lives Matter people have a backwards definition of racism from what we do. And it and that's that's the real challenging thing about some of these talks is they said the word racism, but I can imagine the All Lives Matter. There's a lot of them in this church. A lot of nodding them. along and saying, "Yep, that's that's telling one to those Black Lives Matter people." <laughs> right and so they're going to mm-hmm. see themselves vindicated by these same talks that correct. we see ourselves vindicated by correct so i wish they would the leaders would um be a little bit more clear on that tell us what these attitudes and behaviors are <laughs> yes tell them what they um, look like and, that, and that's the work that that unfortunately or fortunately president nelson commissioned us to do so here we are so here again. we are yes Oh, and of course, the biggest thing to say about this dispute on the definition of racism is when there's a dispute on the, what racism means, we need to be listening to black people. Yes. Not to white people defining racism, but to the people who suffer Actually from experience it, it should be the For ones real. to define it. For real. Right? And uh, we who are white need to be listening to our friends of color on this. Definitely. Thank you for saying that, Derek. Anyway, you got any other uh, thoughts on conference? I want to talk just a little bit about Elder Renlund's Renlund! Yes, I'm sorry. Now he mentioned he mentioned race too. Woo! Yes, he did. And going back to afflicting the comfortable, he did a lot of that. He came for everybody. <laughs> Nobody was safe. Uh, he talked a lot about judgmentalism, which mm-hmm. the LGBT community has been very much like. I think this is one of the few prejudices that is still okay to be judgment. Like a lot of people realize that they're not supposed to be racist. They're not supposed to be sexist. And they still are, but but at yep. least they they say at least they admit that that's wrong. 
there's a lot of people who don't even admit that prejudice against LGBTs is wrong. Right. And so this judgmental attitude, and he had a very amazing story about a physician who was oh, called yes. to serve people where they are, and yeah. she's like, that's his own fault, and like, no. And that's actually a Book of Mormon teaching that if someone is poor, even if it's their own fault, you still gotta help them. This right. goes back to King Benjamin's sermon. Yeah. But I just love this this statement about being non-judgmental. And then Micah 6, 8 has been a very prominent social justice text for everyone for a long time, right? And I just want to name, I'm going to quote this whole paragraph by Elder Renland. He said, to be Christ-like, a person loves mercy. People who love mercy are not judgmental. They manifest compassion for others, especially for those who are less fortunate. They're gracious, kind, and honorable. These individuals treat everyone with love and understanding, regardless of characteristics such as race, gender, religious affiliation, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, and tribal clan or national differences. These are superseded by Christ-like love. It's interesting what he names there. Um, race gender, religious affiliation. So all this anti-Muslim prejudice is condemned right here. Sexual orientation, everything that's been done against my people is condemned right here. Socioeconomic status, a lot of people culturally in the church don't like poor people. Yep. We should be the most, we should, like if you, if Jesus Christ is the middle name of your church, you had better love poor people. <laughs> yeah. Right? He loved poor people, he was a poor person. Mm-hmm. Um, he had to get money out of a fish in order to pay his tax to the temple, right? Mm. He did not have money, right? He relied on women. <laughs> I don't think there's a story that talks about how broke Jesus was than that miracle <laughs> right there. Like you, the man literally had to grab a fish and pull a coin out of it and be like, ah, give me that coin. Yeah, that's Pay my tax. That's in Matthew 17, if I remember correctly. Okay. And there's this um, text, I think it's in Luke 8, where he depends on the gen generosity of women who to fund his ministry. So let's not talk about conference anymore because I could just keep talking for as long as conference was. I could be talking. <laughs> there we go. Okay, that sounds like a good place to end the conversation on conference to me. So uh, before we get on, get on to these, uh, uh, the Come Follow Me, just want to remind you guys, we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. This week, we are in the book of 3rd Nephi, chapter 20 through 26. Derek, sir, do you have any uh, literary, historical, theological context you want to give to these chapters before we dive into the content? Yeah, I just want to talk a little bit about what Mormon is doing here. He is being selective, and he's actually told in, in, this, uh, in this reading how selective he's supposed to be. Like, say this, don't say that. And he deliberately includes quotations from the biblical record here. And I think that serves a purpose, and, and we'll get to this later. 
but a lot of these have to do with ex exile and restoration, and that provides hope for the original hearers, right, during Third Nephi, the Nephites, but it also provides hope for the rest of the world in the latter days, that after the Book of Mormon comes forth, people of all nations will find comfort and peace in this promise of restoration and gathering. So that's kind of, I want to see where what Mormon is doing with some of that. So I wanted to focus on Third Nephi 23 because this is a pretty significant, albeit perhaps forgettable exchange if we read too quickly. Uh, this is where Christ lets his Nephite disciples know that there are words missing from their records. Christ asks the Nephites to bring forth their records and then reminds the Nephites that some pretty critical teachings about his coming preached by this Lamanite prophet Samuel were not included in this record intended to be a testament of his divinity and all of the things that prophesied had come to pass, a fact which the Nephites do acknowledge. And at this point, Jesus asks what must be an obvious question to the disciples who are listening at this point. In verse 11, How be it, says Jesus, that ye have not written this thing, that many saints did arise and appear unto many and did minister unto them. Now there's a couple things worth pointing out here. It is significant to note that the only reason we have the words of any Lamanite prophets at all is because of the intervention of Jesus Christ which is very on brand for Jesus based on what we've talked about today alone. Jesus came for the marginalized. He dedicated the whole beatitudes to the a whole section he, he, the, the whole beatitudes is to the marginalized. He spent most of his ministry among the marginalized. It stands to reason that Jesus would want to make sure that those voices are included, especially when we consider that Samuel's words were about the coming of Christ and the meaning of his mission. Not only that, but Samuel's words very clearly called out the causes of the divisions between the Nephites and the Lamanites, the righteous and the wicked, which had been mostly along racial lines in the Book of Mormon this, uh, thus far. Also significant to note, Samuel uh, was that Samuel declared the Lord told him to preach what was on his heart, and that is what came out. The words of Samuel's heart were about Jesus Christ, what was going to happen when he came, the things that were going to happen when he resurrected, and about the economic and social violence that occurred in the Nephite and Lamanite communities. This is what was on this Lamanite prophet's heart. This is what he shared. The important testimony and prophecy of Christ, the condemnation of the physical and economic violence and contention, among other things, is one of the most important sermons we have in the Book of Mormon. Yet... We would not have it without the intervention of Christ. So we got to consider for a moment at this point that the Nephites were working on becoming a righteous people, we can assume, now that Christ had arrived. But for whatever reason, probably due to Samuel being a Lamanite, these Nephites charged with keeping the records did not record the words of Samuel. I think we need to take a moment to learn from this, especially considering President Nelson's call to abandon attitudes and actions of prejudice. Erasure and exclusion from conversations are some of those actions of mm -hmm. prejudice. When we don't include the perspectives of the other or those that are different from us, we rob ourselves of va valuable perspective and opportunities to learn and better ourselves. We dishonor the lives of those we exclude, and we probably dishonor and disrespect the Savior as well when we don't treat his prophets of other colors with the same regard as the ones that look like us. 
the Savior is once again teaching us by doing what we should be doing, which is value other voices. And that begs the question, what else don't we have? Samuel didn't record his own words, so even those words of Samuel that we do have are filtered through a Nephite scribe. Samuel, like what's missing in this sermon? What's missing from the earlier records in the Book of Mormon of the righteous Lamanites? Like wouldn't it be wouldn't it be cool to have the records of the Lamanites as they became the anti-Nephi Lehi's? Wouldn't it be cool mm-hmm. to have some of those words of the most righteous societies and fascinating conversion stories in the whole of the Book of Mormon? How much different might our ministry and our worship experience be? How much different would our understanding of the first and second great commandments be? How much different might our understandings of social and economic justice be if we had more records of Lamanites? Yeah, and that's really tough. And that's where serious textual scholarship may be able to help somewhat. There's the technique of mirror mirror reading, where you look at a text and see what it must have been responding to and hypothetically reconstructing what the other side would have been. We have to do this with Paul all the time, is figure out, well, what were his opponents saying? Because we don't have his opponents' words. Like, what were they saying? What were the Corinthians writing to him and asking him? Because we don't have the correspondence from Corinth to Paul. And I think a similar thing is here. Like, we can, to some extent, and obviously it's going to be subjective and it's going to be an imperfect hypothesis, but we could put in the work to recover the voices of women in the Book of Mormon, to recover the voices of the Lamanites, just based on the apparent impact it has on the records we do have. And I just totally detoured from wherever you were going to go. So where were you going no, with that? No, okay. I think I was done with talking about uh, Samuel and those words just... It just hit me different having experienced conference this past Sunday. Yeah, it is. It's interesting. Jesus comes and says, I sent you a brown prophet and you didn't even keep those records. And he kind of said some important stuff. Yeah. yeah. About me <laughs> and what I'm going to do. Yeah. And y'all didn't write that down. Can you imagine like having some of the best and most significant teachings about the Jesus that is to come decades before he arrives? And then people don't write that stuff down because you're black. Yeah, and let's let's look at, speaking of likening the scriptures unto yourself, let me just go back and talk about this exile business because there's a lot to cover in the quotations from Isaiah. And there's also Malachi and Micah here. So I just want to let people know that Micah was written before the Babylonian exile. The second Isaiah material here was written during the exile, uh, an oracle of blessing and comfort to the people while they were in exile. And then Malachi was written after the exile. So we've got everything here that's quoted is sort of tied into what is its position in in reference to the exile. And so let's talk about why this exile business is so important. It's because when the Israelites were taken into Babylon, this was a defining moment in their history. And they spent time in Babylon longing to be back in Israel, and then they were eventually restored. And the way it's framed in Isaiah and elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible is that this was God, God let it happen, right? And by making sense out of it that way, they ended up maintaining their own identity as Israelites, whereas almost every other nation that gets conquered by Babylon, they just assimilated and worshiped the Babylon, Babylonian gods saying, whoops, we were wrong and Babylon's more powerful. But the Israelite monotheists were like, nope, there's only one God, and somehow this all fits into God's picture, and we're going to stay faithful to our tradition and our God. 
So let's look at, that's why this exile is so important to me. And especially as a queer person, I feel that we who are LGBT are in a state of exile. We're in a state of exile. And I'll, and I'll get to that later. But I just want to talk about some of these where, I don't even know where I want to start with this. But yeah, and so the Book of Mormon itself is a product of the scattering of Israel because some of Israel was scattered to this continent and that ends up being meaning-making for the people of 3rd Nephi when Jesus comes to them and then you've got all these texts that tie into this exile experience and how God promises to love and, and support God's people. And I just love, let me just go through Isaiah it, it, it's in Isaiah 54, and then it's quoted in 2 Nephi 22. And so what this chapter is, it's an oracle of blessing addressed to a woman. So it, the people of Israel are collectively personified as a woman. I think that's important because we should be able to see ourselves in some way as a, a, a female figure. I think that's important for us to to have that type of empathy and that type of imagination. Even though I, as a man, I can't authentically imagine what it's like to be a woman. But rhetorically, we're put in that position by the by a prophet of God. So we've got this gender-bending situation for male readers of the text. So it says in verse 1, Sing, O barren, and the word for barren is feminine in Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew of Isaiah. Sing, O barren, that thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. So this is an expression of comfort because it goes on to say, For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. So this problematizes our understanding of the family. We always think, oh, a married woman with kids, that's the way it's supposed to be. And, and the Lord's saying, look, there's this is turned on its head. The last shall be first. And, I just, and, and the point of this is really metaphorical, that yes, Israel has been devastated by the Babylonian exile, but God will more than make up for it later, which may or may not be problematic theology, depending on what you how you feel about God. But let's look at verse 8. It says, um, In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. All, of the, all this is about the exile. And the exile as punishment is... God turning away for a small moment have I forsaken thee, as verse 7 says. But with great mercies will I gather thee. And that small moment must have been, it must have felt more than a moment. Like if you look at Psalm 74, is a great expression of the feelings of the Israelites while they were in exile and how they longed for God and said, God, why have you forgotten us? And all sorts of things like that. And I, and I can't even imagine how this would have hit the people of third Nephi because look watch this they just had all that devastation and destruction and yep. lots and lots of people dying and all of this geographic upheaval let's yep. look at verse 10 for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed but my kindness shall not depart from thee mm. I think that's so amazing and that would have hit them differently than it would have hit the Israelites who would have saw that as being about the exile and Christ's people here would have seen that about, look, we had this devastation, but now God's going to be on our side and more than make up for it. And God will not be angry forever, but there's there's this amazing covenant 
And then there's a promise in verses 15 through 17 that Israel's enemies will not prosper, that, you know, people are going to gather against you, but they're going to fail. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, verse 17. And every tongue shall revile against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. And I want to name this exile peace, especially from the standpoint of an LGBT person, right? Because we queer people really are in exile. Like we feel what's being felt right here, that God appears to have abandoned us and that God has put us in an impossible position and we're wondering why God isn't doing anything about this. Why God's church isn't on the right side yet. And so speaking just for myself, I'm not really in a lot of pain. I've, I've never thought, oh, you know, this is awful. And I, I really coast, I have a lot of privilege. And so I coast through this church with a lot of joy in thriving. But I, on behalf of my people, need to say something. And it goes back to this, this concept of exile. Because we've been scattered. You know how the Jews were scattered throughout all the world among all these other peoples. And being scattered is different than being segregated all in your, by yourself or even being independent all by yourself. If it's very isolating to just be thrown and sprinkled about around all the nations of the world. And we who are LGBT are sprinkled among straight people and cis people. And that can be really tough. It can be tough if you're isolated and you're the only one. And then it can be even tougher if your church doesn't recognize your full humanity or your full divinity. And so we're in an exile experience. We are homesick for a place we've never been. We are homesick for a place we've never been. Let me explain what I mean by that. We who are LGBT members of the church know in our heart a church that fully loves us and has full equality for us and where our experiences are centered, where we have marriage equality in the temple, where our families are seen and respected. So we have that church in our heart, but that church doesn't exist anywhere we've been. And, and I need to name that. I, and I want to just ask straight people, like, People think, oh, well, the law of chastity is the same for everyone. We're all equal, whatever. Let me just ask you, would you really want to be treated the way LGBT people are treated? Would you be happy? I want to ask any straight person, would you be happy to be treated the way I'm treated? I don't think there's anyone who would. Um, and that's why I think this material from Isaiah is so powerful. So powerful because we're, we're scattered. And... Like I've said, we're homesick for a place we've never been. We've seen a blue sky that's bluer than anything we've seen on earth in, in our heart. And we're waiting, we're waiting for that to become a reality. I also think about the children of Israel in Egypt. Those who were born in Egypt never saw uh, the promised land. It's not like they're longing for a place that they knew. They were born there. And then same with people in the exile in Babylon. That lasted for 70 years. There are people who grew up in Babylon with Israel as their homeland and had never seen Israel. That's where we as LGBT people are. And, uh, and it, it seems like we're in an impossible situation. People will think, well, God abandoned you and the church is never going to change. And 
well, of course the church is going to change because God runs it. God has not abandoned me. And that's the whole message. Like all these people, why is, why, why is Isaiah being quoted here? That's the whole point is God has not abandoned you, right? And I am sure that my people will be vindicated. I don't know when. Like I don't have the timetable. That depends on people's agency. But I know that my people will be vindicated and the first shall be last. And I think about when people say, well, it's impossible for the church to change. I'm going to say God does impossible things. And yes, it looks like we're in an impossible situation, but it's no more impossible than when the children of Israel were on the shores of the Red Sea with the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptian army behind them. There's no more impossible situation than that. But God found a way through. God found a way through that no one could have foreseen. Mm -hmm. And the same thing will be true for LGBT people. It seems impossible now, but there will be a way through and it will be amazing. And all of the nations of the world will marvel at what God does with our people on that day. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I'm homesick for a place I've never been, but I'm gonna get there and it will be the promised land. Yes, sir. Beautiful, man. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, the pittance of what I can share that would complement that was actually going to be found in 3 Nephi 26. The only thing that I really wanted to point out was these verses. Um, again, perhaps just the context of what you just said as well as what we've gone over this past conference that made these stand out to me. But I really just want to highlight one of the possible readings of the of uh, of this passage in verse uh, nine and ten. This is the editorial commentary on what has been put in the book so far. And when they shall have received this, which is expedient that they should have first to try their faith, and if it shall be so that they shall believe these things, then shall the greater things be made manifest unto them. And if it so be that they will not believe these things, then shall the greater things be withheld from them unto their condemnation. So we, we've heard this sentiment in one way or another, at least a couple of times in the Book of Mormon and perhaps a couple of times in the Bible as well, if I'm not mistaken. But what's being said here, it seems that greater knowledge and wisdom our people need is conditional upon our ability to abide that knowledge we have received already. This isn't really a new concept, like I said, but considered in the context of what we've just talked about and what we've just learned in conference and what we normally talk about on this show, I think it bears mentioning that one of the reasons we may not know the place of gay people in the plan of salvation is because we haven't fully accepted and learned what it means to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. I feel like one interpretation of these verses and other verses like them is that our ability to understand and keep the commandments that we have will affect our ability to understand how to navigate some of our most pressing questions as a faith, LGBTQ inclusion, um, anti-racism, many other things. Mm-hmm. The I role th- of women in the church. The role we of have women not in the church. done Big what we one. need to do. That's like half of our population right there. Just yeah. we, haven't, we haven't done the work. And I feel like some of our most pressing questions will be answered when we learn how to fully live according to the first and second great commandments. Um, and, you know, perhaps some other commandments that we have been given as well. Mm-hmm. But as, as was said by Halal, I, don't, I, I still can't pronounce that name. But the whole of the Torah being, 
you know, basically loving your neighbor as yourself. I feel like when we fully come to understand what that means, I feel like the sealed portion will begin to be open to mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we haven't fully unpacked and lived into the the 1978 revelation. No, like, we have not. Like, how is, no, we have not. How is God going to send us more if we haven't done what we needed to do with the last one we got? And we right? haven't really repaired that. We haven't repaired the effects of that 126-year dispossession of black people from our temples and from our priesthood. And I think the most naive part of this is to say, well, we've got it right now, so we don't even need to explore how we got it wrong. But if we don't explore how we got it wrong, we're going to not honor the, the pain of the people who endured that time, right? For real. We're not going to understand that we're n- and we can't really fully unpack that. And we're not going to be successful as we could be in our missionary efforts, in our ministering efforts, in our reactivation efforts. You know how many black people we baptize but we lose because we haven't fully reckoned with this part? Yeah, I mean... We lose a lot of LGBT folks too. Those that are raised mm-hmm. in the church, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't have numbers on this, but I can imagine that it's ninety percent or ninety-five percent leave the church. Jeez, right? If you had that failure as a heart surgeon, which President Nelson is, you wouldn't be in business, right? Mm-hmm. You would realize, oh, I'm doing something wrong. If you are failing a group of people at that rate. You're doing something wrong. I know this as an educator. If for, if like, if 95% of my whatever population were failing my class and everyone else was doing well, there's not something wrong with them. There's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's the other reason why we need to go back and understand how we got it wrong is what else are we getting wrong today? And I think that's really, that's probably the, one of the factors why people in the church don't want to go back and apologize and don't want to go back and say, well, the, the leaders were wrong because then people, the next question people will ask is, well, what else are they wrong about today? Mm-hmm. Are they wrong about women? Are they wrong about LGBTs? Are they wrong about any other number of things that, that there's a lot of insecurity about and a lot and no answers on? Speaking of insecurity, I want to talk about, well, why does Jesus quote all, you know, he quotes Malachi and he quotes Peter's sermon in Acts 3. And why is he doing all this? And what's interesting about that is backwards from the rhetoric of the way people normally quote the scriptures. Normally, people quote the scriptures as having authority and quote them in order to appropriate authority for themselves, saying, look, I've got, I'm, I'm borrowing that authority. But Jesus actually flows the other way. He's he doesn't need any more authority than coming down from heaven with glory and splendor and doing all these miraculous things and mm-hmm. repopulating a whole bunch of wine and bread when there isn't wasn't any to begin with, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't need any he doesn't need to appeal to the scriptures to boost his standing. What he's doing is lending some of his standing to the scriptures saying, "Look, you need to think Isaiah is important. You need to think Malachi is important. You need to think Micah is important. You need to think Samuel the Lamanite's important. <laughs> and that's what he's doing. That's why he's quoting all these people because of the importance of these prophets who speak of him. But even when he's there and says, you, you've got all of me that there is, he still wants to filter that through the records of these prophets and saying these people had this experience foreseeing me and this is what it meant to them at their time and that's important Mm. and i think the experience of all of us all of our experiences of christ even before we see him in person 
those are valid and those need to be named. And I love how this lesson ends in uh, verse 19 of chapter 26. It says, and they taught and did minister one to another and they had all things in common among them, every man dealing justly one with another. You know, the Book of Mormon in the 19th century really was read as a social justice text. Now in the 21st century, it's read individualistically and almost abstractly about, about your private journey with God and a private journey is, and it's, it's all about you as repentant as an individual and it's a missionary text, but people don't look at the social justice dynamics of the text, which people in the 19th century saw that. I think we should have some respect for the earliest readers of the Book of Mormon after it was returned to this continent and published. But I just think that is so beautiful. One really great text of our time is Pope Francis's new encyclical, Fratelli Tutti. It means all siblings. And it talks about racism. It talks about war. It talks about economic justice. It talks about so many interesting things that are very, very valid. And one of the points that I brought out, and I didn't even realize this myself, is Pope Francis quotes a number of church fathers from the first centuries of the church saying, this whole earth was given to all of humanity. Like all of Adam and Eve's children, logically, are heirs of the earth. And it's not for one person to gobble up a whole bunch of the resources and let there be poor people. We all have the right to food and clothing and shelter just by being human. And this and and Pope Francis says very clear that private property is not an absolute independent right. It's only a secondary right in the larger context of taking care of people. And that is absolutely a biblical value and a Book of Mormon value. Like all of these people who say, well, you, you snooze, you lose, you lift yourselves up by your own bootstraps, there's no systemic anything, it's just everyone functions according to how they're doing. That's actually what Korahor said, remember? <laughs> he says, like, everyone just yeah. functions according to their, uh, to their, their genius. genius. Yeah. Right? And that that's Korahor's teaching, but the real teaching is that of Jesus that turns everything upside down and say, we're all in this together as one family. And not like the all lives matter way, but the real way. Correct. Now, I just wanted to point out one more thing that is worth mentioning in chapter 26 is the number of times that uh, we are told that the people were taught things that could not be written, things that were forbidden. Maybe that's where the pro-LGBT things went. That's <laughs> what I was thinking. Now, like, hear me out on this, because, like, this is where it, like, started coming alive for me, was actually verse 14. And it came to pass that he did teach and minister unto the children of the multitude, of whom hath been spoken. And he did loose their tongues, and they did speak unto their fathers great and marvelous things, even greater than he had revealed unto the people. I wow. think that is quite significant, especially considering that you had pointed out that Jesus was quoting all these other prophets that he didn't need to quote. He wasn't just deferring to other people to validate his own legacy, but also letting them know that these words are great and y'all need to pay attention to these. These are valid. He was like validating the words of prophets that he himself had sent. And then we get to Jesus ministering to these children and them saying things even greater than what Jesus had taught them. Greater things so much so that they could not be written. Which tells me a couple of things. One is that words can be given, great words can be given to God's children. The least of these, the last, the mm -hmm. lost, 
the profoundly outcast or marginalized people who are just otherwise not conditioned to listen to like children and we can receive some great things from them because the lord has loosed their tongues that is one thing i wanted to point out and the other thing being that a lot of these words that are forbidden and it's been like named two or three times throughout this chapter 26 that great things could not be written and were forbidden to be written and then boom we get to verse 19 all of them did minister to one another and had all things in common. What did Jesus say to these folks that they were able to get to this point and hold on to this for like 200 some years? What did Jesus say to them? Like, that's what I want to know. And further, what did those children say? What wisdom did these people obtain to the point where they were able to hold on to a near utopian society for like 200 years? But that reminds me a lot of what Jesus said in John Let's see, it's either in John chapter 15 or 16 in the farewell discourse. Jesus says, many things I have to tell you, but you cannot bear them right now. He wanted to be able to tell these disciples. That's cross-referenced here, bro. Oh, it is? It's cross-referenced. Many things. all Like, many things I want to tell you, but you can't bear them now. It's cross-referenced here, bro. Oh, well, oops. No, this is perfect. <laughs> Keep going. But, but, then, but, but then the second part of that is, but the spirit of truth, when he comes, will lead you into all truth. Okay. And yes. that's, that's the cool thing is like, yes. yes, people say, people that think that everything we needed to know, we knew in the lifetime of the prophet Joseph Smith. Nope. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of mm-hmm. stuff that we weren't ready for. Yep. And there's a lot of stuff that white people weren't ready for in uh, in Brigham's time. For 126 years, yeah. to be precise. Right. And I don't want to, we don't want to ever say, well, everyone was racist back then because you, no! know, you know who wasn't racist back then? The black, black people. people. <laughs> right, right. So like we white people, we're not without excuse. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't have an excuse there. People always knew better, y'all. Someone always knew better. Someone always knew better. Let me just, for the record, tell you, okay, if people could be listening to this like 50 or 100 years from now, okay? <laughs> so right now it is October 10th, 2020. If any one of you in the future says everyone was homophobic back in 2020, no. Not Derek. No. Not James. Not James. Not, not even most people right now. Right. Like the leaders of our church now in 2020 are without excuse. And so if anyone from the church PR department in the year 2075 comes back and say, well, Elder Oaks was a product of his time and, and everyone was homophobic back then, nope. A large number of people in the church resisted this. Mm-hmm. Let me say that on the record in 2020. 10, 10, 2020. I think that's all I got to say, bro. Anything else that's you That's all I got to say. I'm just so glad that we're able to do this work together. And I want to make sure our listeners are empowered to do some of this work themselves. All of you listeners, you actually know the scriptures better than you think you do. Mm-hmm. People out of the blue may not know where something is, but I think people know the scriptures better than they think they do. And I want to lift up the competence and skill of everyone wherever they are. You can do amazing things with what you have. So dig into the scriptures more. All right. With that, we will move on to some housekeeping items real quick. Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50-plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, 
and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. Derek, where can the folks find us? You can find us on BeyondTheBlockPodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS and on Facebook. Search for us. Yep. Just be on the block on that Facebook there. I just wanted to also remind you guys in an effort to sustain the work of the show and also improve it in various ways to further the mission of Beyond the Block and to make Mormonism more accessible to everyone. We launched our Glow page a few months ago now where if you are willing and able, you can throw some coins our way in the form of a monthly contribution or a one-time contribution. And those who contribute anything at all get access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us, including access to our collaborator Facebook page where you can interact with us more directly, provide feedback and ideas for the show, access our notes, and a lot more. If you don't got any coins to throw at us, just share our glow page on your socials and you can still join our collaborator community. And I just want to add my witness to Derek's that we're doing some great work here. You know, y'all definitely know the scriptures better than you think you do. And also you guys are doing more good uh, than you think you're doing. So we hope that uh, whatever it is that Derek and I are doing here can encourage everybody else to, you know, claim space and uh, claim the scriptures for themselves and hopefully empower others to do the same. I uh, finally want to give a special thanks to David Doyle for editing our transcripts, Tamara Kemsley for editing our show, and also Eden Wynn, who's on a sabbatical at the moment because, you know, she went had to have a baby and everything. So, you know, got to handle that business. But uh, all of y'all are rock stars. We really appreciate what y'all do for the show behind the scenes. Uh, is there anything else we got to put out there, Derek, in the ether? I don't think so. Wonderful, then. Until we meet again next week, guys.